Hello, friends. Welcome to the Earth of the Lights podcast. This week, we have Penny Clark, who is a researcher currently undertaking a PhD at the University of Westminster, where she has been awarded the PhD studentship. She is also a co-founder of Conscious Co-Living, which is a group of shared living consultants co-creating a new paradigm of connected and conscious communities. Penny's research interests include community groups and intentional communities, pro-environmental behavior change, social practices, and social norms. Penny, thanks for doing this. Thanks for giving us your time. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Pleasure, pleasure. Uh, how are you doing? What's the crack? Uh, I'm doing very well, thanks. Um, enjoying the beautiful weather over here in London. Um, I've never heard that phrase before, by the way. I really like it. Really? Never, Whoa. no. It's a good ha- have you had Have you had a strong or uh, any interaction with Irish people before? Not enough, clearly. Okay, yeah, not enough, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, it's, it's uh, it will definitely get you some brownie points next time you meet an Irish person. Oh, great. Well, that's good to know. Um, so, yeah, sure. I'm well, thanks. Um, how are you? Good. Yeah, like like you, the weather has uh, boosted my mood significantly. So, yeah, and I'm just really looking forward to this chat. Um, I guess the first thing I want to ask you is, how do you explain your research to people who have never heard of the topic before? Okay, um, so in in a nutshell, what I'm doing is I'm exploring environmental sustainability practices in UK co-housing and co-living communities. Um, so to to give a little bit of a broader context, of course, at the moment we're we're in a climate crisis. Um, we need to rethink the way that we're living, um, and this is a crisis that needs to be acted upon on many different levels. Um, but the the thing that I'm looking at in particular is housing and behavior change. Um, so, so part of the issue that we have is that our housing is too polluting. Um, a lot of our houses are a bit too big. They're very inefficient in terms of their sort of insulation and this kind of thing. And perhaps due to their location, you know, you have to have a car to live there in order to commute to work. Um, mm-hmm. And not only that, but the things we do in our houses, the things we do every day, um, that needs to change too. So our daily practices and the values which kind of underpin those daily practices need to shift. Um, Mm. So the UK government has been really slow and it hasn't it's shown a real lack of impetus in actually doing this, in thinking about, you know, how can our housing be more efficient and Mm. how can we persuade people to change what they do every day? Um, so what I've been doing is looking at grassroots shared living projects, and that's co-housing and co-living in particular in the UK. Um, so perhaps uh, some people out there haven't heard of co-housing and co-living. Um, no, so do- yeah, uh, sorry. Uh, do, yeah, do you mind um, differentiating co-housing and co-living? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, that's a really common question. So they're both types of shared living where a group of people who aren't related by blood or marriage, share living space uh, with the intention to live as a community. Um, And that intention to live as a community can express itself in a variety of ways. So it might be like sharing childcare, cooking group meals together. It could be engaging in some kind of spiritual practice. Uh, It might be just hanging around together or doing the gardening. Um, So where co-housing and co-living differ is actually spatial in spatial terms. So if you live in a co-living community, um, you're living together in one building. So it might be a house share or a flat share. Uh, Whereas if you live in a co-housing community, you have your own front door, you have your own private house, 
uh, but then you'll have separate shared communal space. So, for example, uh, the UK's first co-housing community uh, is Springhill Co-housing, and they're based in Stroud. Uh, and they have about 35 houses. And then they also have one big community building, which has like a communal kitchen and communal shared living space. Um, but as I mentioned, the the important thing that brings these two types of community living together is that intention to live as a community. So, for example, with co-living, if you're in a flat share where you're kind of like you're existing together, uh, you you know, you chat about your day, but essentially you're living separate lives. Like personally, I wouldn't say that that's co-living. It's, it's this intentionality to live together that's important. Um, so in terms of my own research, um, what I'm really interested in is whether these types of household are more environmentally sustainable than your average single family home. And if so, what is it about them that makes them this way? Um, and in particular, how do the close social networks typically formed in these homes potentially act as networks in which behaviour change can occur? So how are people influencing each other? And what lessons can we maybe learn from these communities about changing behaviours to be more sustainable? Okay. And you you mentioned that the UK government have been quite slow to encourage or delve into this more environmentally sustainable behaviour in terms of living. Do you think that is based off a lack of evidence and th this is what you hope your PhD can contribute to? Or do you think there are other factors at play also? Hmm. Um, I think I think in part it is, yeah, okay, so there's always this challenge that um, it's, it's very difficult to quantify some of these intangible things that come along with, with, the, with social influence, right? Um, so yes, I definitely think that's part of it. Um, I also think the whole, the whole approach that uh, is, is dominant when it comes to thinking about behavior change is to approach people as rational individuals. So for example, to, to give people a financial incentive to buy solar panels, um, without having a more a broader, more holistic understanding of what motivates people. And often, uh, like I think a key thing that motivates people is this kind of this social element, you know, feeling part mm. of a group um, yeah. or doing what you feel is normal. And it's very difficult to quantify that. And it's very difficult to influence that. And it's very hard to understand it. So I think all of these things can act as a barrier. Um, and I also think that because of the kind of society we live in that um, it, it promotes um, individualism, which in some ways is really great, in some ways is maybe not that helpful. Um, the government hesitates to appear too dictatorial, I suppose, um, mm. which as I said, in many ways, is not, it's not a bad thing. But I think that that's another reason why the government has been sort of slow and cautious to, to intervene and has gone more for nudges rather than for for being more i guess more ambitious um, and would you be confident that if more and more of these intentional communities were established that it would kind of just be a snowball effect because people would stop seeing it as you know so away from the norm yeah i think for sure um that would be the case uh and i think at the moment i mean at the moment they are these are like grassroots communities you know they come from groups of people who get together and feel like they want to 
to live in a different way, um, which is important and it's part of that culture shift. But I think that it's only ever going to become more mainstream with more infrastructural support and also with the backing of businesses as well, who kind of, mm. they have the the funding and they have the ability to scale and the ability to do things at greater speed. Um, so I think although my kind of, my my heart is with these intentional communities because I think what they do is really inspiring and wonderful um, for it to really scale and become mainstream. I think, yeah, um, larger business and uh, and governmental infrastructures have to come into play more. Perfect. Thank you. And do you mind um, explaining the the current findings or semi-findings that you've found so far? And I... I I heard the interview you did last year and you, you mentioned that you have three case studies where you're looking at three separate um, communities. Can you tell the listeners a bit about these communities? Sure, absolutely. Um, so it's actually, in the end, it's ended up being four case studies. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I, got a, I got another one. I snuck another one in there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I've, I felt hugely lucky to work with these different communities. So two are co-housing communities. So co-housing where people have their own front door and then separate shared communal space. And one was very rural. Uh, and one was urban in Leeds. And then I also worked with two co-living communities. So these were smaller communities. I mean, essentially, they were kind of flat shares, basically. Okay. They were both um, flats well one was a flat of six people and one was a flat of seven people and they were both based in London Um, and so I I kind of there were two sides to my research Uh, one was the quantitative element so I asked them to complete surveys and I used the data from these surveys to measure their CO2 impacts Uh, and then the other side was qualitative it was sort of staying with them observing interviewing uh, learning about their life there Um, and at, so at this point in time, I've just got my data in and I'm starting to look at the findings. Um, so firstly, it, it does seem that from what I can see, um, the communities that I worked with are significantly more environmentally sustainable than the equivalent average household. Um, so the, they tend to use less energy. Um, they tend to have a less environmentally impactful diet. Um, and in most cases, that's because they tend to have vegetarian or vegan food or have uh, lowered meat consumption. Um, they they tend to compost and recycle more and have less uh, waste that goes to landfill, for example. Um, so some, some interesting things I've picked out from this is that there are certain payoffs. So, for example, the rural community that I worked with, they grow their own food um, and they have a lot of land to do this on. But because they need this land and they found this location, they're very dependent on car travel. So the pollution from car travel is much higher than the national uh-huh. average. And then you have the other way around as well. In these urban communities, they don't have space to grow their own food, but they can use public transport all the time or they, they bike everywhere. So their emissions there are really low. Um, and I think one of the things that I learned was that um, a lot of these emissions are very infrastructure dependent. So, for example, the two communities based in London, in part, their CO2 um, 
from waste is very low because London's actually pretty good at getting rid of its rubbish. So um, if rubbish goes to landfill, it has a much, much worse environmental impact than if rubbish is incinerated. So that's basically, as a community, that's somewhat out of your hands. Um, and similarly, density is very, very important. So six people sharing a house normally that might be occupied by 2.4 people um, means that you're heating a lot less space. Um, and that's when it comes to CO2, that's a massive factor. Um, and then one more thing I'd like to mention about the quantitative results is that the meaning and the significance that we place on practices doesn't always correspond to their CO2 emissions. So one community I worked with put so much effort into not using plastic, which is absolutely commendable. Um, but they also took a lot of flights every year. Um, so in fact, like that had a much bigger impact than then all their really great efforts to not use plastic. Um, mm. So, so that's that's some of the things coming out of the quantitative side. Um, so, I also did a lot of qualitative research, uh, which was very interesting. Um, and I think one thing that was really clear was the that there is an alternative culture that is kind of happening in these communities, and maybe in some ways, kind of being hothoused in these communities. Yeah. So especially with these larger communities where there's more households, to a certain extent, they have to be run like workplaces, right? Because there's just a lot that they have to do that's shared. So they have meetings, they have rotors, uh, they have emails, which in theory they should read every day, but are not always easy to, to keep up with. Uh, but the interesting thing is that the language of the heart is given a place as well in these communities. So, you know, meetings begin with a check-in, um, emotional sharing happens. People are acknowledging the role and the importance of that. And so this alternative culture is this interesting mix of almost like a business workplace, but with this very strong well-being and interpersonal aspect as well. And they're acknowledging how these two things come together. Um, and I, you know, I don't think that this is a culture that is... Um, you know, completely unique to intentional communities. Um, you also see it in certain types of activism. Um, you see it at transformative festivals. Um, so I see intentional communities as part of this burgeoning culture. Um, and altogether, I think there's just been, in, in these communities, there's this reframing of private and public. There's like a blending. There's a blending of private public, of what is work and what is play, um, work becomes much more about sociability and pleasure uh, rather than money. So there's this real emphasis on meaningful work um, and overall just this more holistic vision of life um, where there is this sense of connecting with yourself and with others and with the world around you too. It's nice to hear that there is a, a nice mix between uh, checking in on an emotional level and a well-being level, but also wanting to get "quote unquote" you know real things done. Because I know the the stereotype is that these the people that live in these communities are only interested in you know, you know hugging trees and eating vegan food and you know <laughs> sharing their emotions. And it, what my experience in Denmark was that this is not necessarily the case at all. That these people also want to get things done, but they just think they can do it in a different way. You know, that there, there can be a, a changing of balance per se. Um, well, I wanted to know just on the qualitative 
uh, side of things. I'm always interested to know the backgrounds of the people who have chose to live in such an environment. Do you, do you have any information on their backgrounds or why they chose this in the first place? Oh, yeah. Well, um, so funny you should ask this, actually, because my so what first got me into this topic was my my master's dissertation. Um, I was I was lucky enough to go and visit some different uh, communities and my topic was like, who are these people? You know, who <laughs> brought them to live here? So I, I went and I interviewed some different people about why it is they came to be there. Um, and there's some, there's some definite patterns going on about the kinds of people who go and live in these communities. Um, so often, very often, it's not the case that, you know, they lived in, quote, normal housing all their life and then one day had an epitome and decided to move to a community. Um, most of these people, um, for, you know, throughout their lives have kind of been what you might call alternative in some way. Mm. Um, they they might have um, had parents who were activists or they've been activists themselves. Um, another thing that came up is that people have often traveled a lot. So I think they've been exposed to different cultures and they have more of an acceptance that there's not just one way of living, there's alternatives as well. Um, mm. They might be people who they've had some kind of um, occurrence in their life where they've had a, a sudden lapse of a social network. So it's kind of clicked with them that social networks are very important in their lives. So that could be, you know, like losing a parent um, quite young or it, it could be something like a divorce. Um, uh, also, you tend to find certain professions um, in these communities. So there's a lot of people in education. And again, like I've wondered if that's like if it's your job to kind of be open minded to learning about new things, maybe that kind of links with this open mindedness to a different way of living as well. Interesting. Um, and there's also there's a lot of people in in what you might call sort of, um, I guess, like prof traditional professions. So I met a lot of people who are um, civil servants or lawyers or doctors um, so when when you go to co-housing communities um, they're not there's a definite alternative thing going on right but actually a lot of people are you know using this horrible word again are what you would consider very normal people um, <laughs> yeah. the co-housing movement in the UK is quite a middle-class university educated movement um, and in fact for the people in co-housing, that's a bit of a worry for them that, you know, are we not diverse enough? Are we not inclusive enough? Um, mm. But yeah, it tends, I think it tends to be people, the people who live there in some way, they, they've had some events in their lives which have opened them up to thinking, actually, there's, you know, there's more than one way of living and that you can explore alternatives. Um, and also, I mean, you you get a lot of people there. So there are a lot of people from kind of semi-activist backgrounds. And I think there is this thing about people who are somewhat disillusioned with mm. with mainstream society. Uh, maybe they don't feel empowered. Maybe they don't like consumerism. Um, those are also the kinds of people that you find quite a lot in intentional communities where you where you do get that. Um, extra feeling of autonomy and empowerment. 
Thanks, Penny. I, I'm interested to know how did your opinion change from the start of the master thesis towards the end then? Uh, did you go in with, I uh, like these guys, they have good intentions, but I, I would never do it? Uh, or <laughs> how did it go? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I, I came at it from a very environmental angle. Um, so I'd, I'd heard of eco-villages and that idea very much captured my imagination. You know, I was picturing these idyllic, lovely green places. Um, and I, I love the idea of um, a kind of utopian vision colliding with the mundane and the everyday, you know, from mm. from this great, you know, we're going to live in a new way to very real things like washing up rotors, for example. Mm. Um, so, so I think the way in which my perception changed, the the kind of unexpected turn it took for me, was that, yeah, I went there thinking about sustainability, um, but then going there opened my eyes to the importance of the community aspect and the the benefits and the fulfillment that brings both from like a, an environmental level, but also on a personal level. And then as I've gone on and uh, worked with more communities, it's really opened my ideas to the well-being aspect that comes with this. And, and how those three aspects are kind of intertwined. That's nice. Um, to so I don't know if familiar if you if you're familiar with Gabor Mate, but um, he often talks about how the the root of many of our issues today can be traced to disconnection, whether that's from our jobs, our environment, the people around us, and disconnection from ourselves. Even could you talk about the link between being connected with the land which is very common in such communities and then being connected with people and yourself yeah sure um yeah i would love to because i so i haven't heard of gabor mate but what you just said his ideas really res like that really resonates with me a lot and i i think that's spot on um so okay this this is how i think about it so when you live in a community um you're having to think about the needs of others um, which happens with any relationship, right? We're, we're, it's not like uh, empathy is exclusive to people in community, um, mm -hmm. but just, as, you know, especially the intensity of living in community uh, means that perhaps there is a greater demand to be thinking about what other people need. Um, so you're constantly in this mindset of thinking about bigger than self issues. And I feel that this kind of primes you to care about the environment and to care about the world you live in, um, mm. especially like if you're part of a land-based community, you're also seeing that cycle of resources. So food just doesn't appear in the supermarkets and waste doesn't just get collected by the council. You grow it, you eat it, you turn it into compost, you see that connection um, and you're also connecting with, with other people as well in that shared endeavor of growing those things together. Um, and then on the other side, um, I think living in a community very much helps you to connect with yourself. So, of course, we're, we're social creatures. Um, and I think we see ourselves in many respects through the eyes of others. So mm. being in a healthy community means you get lots of reflections of yourself and those reflections might be hopefully mostly good um, some of the things reflected back will be your own flaws as well mm -hmm. um, so you learn better who you are you learn your strengths and your flaws and so importantly you have a place within a group of people and I think it's, it's this self-knowledge 
and the feeling of security that comes with it, which is so vital for well-being. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you know, to it, me, community really enables connection on different levels. It's funny what you said uh, really resonated with me also because uh, the community I was living in in Denmark was roughly about 25 people, sometimes a bit more depending on the week or the day. But uh, the first few weeks, I would of, I would often hear people talk about the idea of a clash whether where somebody is basically confronted with a difficulty with another person or themselves. And it was funny watching how frustrated I got in the first few weeks and months with, with these clashes. But then after a few months, I realized that it, it's quite normal um, in, in mainstream society that if you're having an issue with somebody or yourself or the situation is, is just very difficult, you kind of move away from that. Like you just, oh, I need a break or I need a holiday or et cetera, et cetera. And when, when you're in this environment, you can't really do that. And like you said, you kind of have to go, okay, I am very much triggered or frustrated by these types of behaviors. Why am I? Well, why is this? And then you think, okay. It, and then you think, oh, is it, is it really an issue with me or is it an issue with these other people? And then if it's an issue with me, I need to do some work. And then if it's an issue with the other people, I probably need to find better ways of communicating that these issues affect me, you know? Mm. Uh, and it, it, it really did help me develop this kind of area in it because, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, so, it's so challenging but so fulfilling at the same time because you really are developing these parts of you that's, you know, often i'm not saying that you can get away with it in, in mainstream society you can't but it's it's very very immediate when you're living in the community by a lot of people you know mm-hmm. that's um, really nice to hear yeah and that that really echoes um, what i've heard from from quite a lot of other people who live in communities as well the mm-hmm. you can't run away from it you have to deal with it but mm. that's a really amazing learning experience, although a challenge at times. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, I'd like, can you talk a bit about the main uh, challenges with community that you've heard on a qualitative basis over the last few years? Because, oh, and also the benefits, but we were touching on the benefits before. I'd love to hear uh, what what the people say gives them, yeah, what... Uh, helps them the most with living in the community or what is most satis- satisfactory for them and also what is the biggest challenge for them or the biggest challenges mm, sure yeah okay um maybe yeah we could start with some challenges um so i think one one thing i think it's important to mention um in the context of challenges is that actually most intentional communities do fail um and that can be for various reasons. Uh, often it's because they don't put the right legal and financial structures in place. Um, often it comes down to vision. So they they don't spend time aligning their vision and they find that they want different things. Um, and I, I, so I think it's important to mention that because there's so many wonderful things about community. Um, but uh, it's not all, you know. Roses. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's t- it can be tough as well. And, um, you know, in communities, you do get conflict. Of course, you get interpersonal conflict. And sometimes it's uh, conflict, kind of hopefully the kind of conflict you can deal with. Um, but then when does conflict actually become bullying? 
you know you you do get bullying that happens in communities um you get people who leave communities feeling deeply hurt and quite you know emotionally scarred from the experience um so that that aside and you know in in a healthy community there are mechanisms to to deal with interpersonal conflict in in the best way possible um but anyway that aside which is very important um essentially what it comes down to the big challenge is you can't do what you want when you want um so there's a lot of constant negotiation that goes on um from the micro level you know of um I don't know, like when I when I went to stay with the rural farming community, I noticed tiny little niggles and negotiations all the time. From these very tiny little things like, oh, she put the apple juice in the freezer where I've been saving space for the milk to go. So what am I meant to do with this milk? You know, that yeah. kind of thing. Or, or, oh, someone took my milking stool that I like to use. Where's that gone? <laughs> you know, all this kind of thing. So you're constantly mm-hmm. having to negotiate and it takes time and it takes energy. And it takes social skills, um, which, I mean, as we talked about, you know, which actually is a great opportunity really to um, to uh, learn better how to live with other people. Um, uh, another yeah. challenge that, that comes up very frequently is that community life can be very intense, um, especially if you're if you're living in a community um, which is a bit bigger and it is run almost a little bit like a business with meetings and actions um, and rotors. It is a bit like having a part-time job where you live. Um, mm-hmm. You have to share in that work of running the community. So work is blending into home life and it's blending into social life, which often is a pleasure, uh, but then it can be hard to compartmentalize that. Um, and people can feel that intensity and there can be a kind of emotional burden of, Um, of guilt, of feeling like you're not doing enough. And then also one that's a a more difficult emotion to deal with is that of resentment. Um, He or she isn't doing enough. Um, So, yeah, those are some of the challenges that come up. Um, And in particular, like to be really specific, um, some of the challenges that I've seen as often occurring in co-housing communities are around parenting. So different parenting styles. Um, because kids often live so closely together, so you're almost like co-parenting a little bit, yeah. um, and uh, and pets as well. Pets comes up a lot, um, as mm. does parking spaces. So a few a few practical things which often come up, um, <laughs> but I I guess they come down to that thing again of that blurring of public and private, and yeah, where where do to what extent does the community get to have a say on things which would traditionally be your private life? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, do you I, does that resonate with your own experiences? Absolutely, yeah, for sure. It it kind of m- made me question like you said what I thought was a fundamentally individual choice or freedom and then oh wait, m- maybe it isn't a freedom to play music at a certain time, whatever. Maybe I do need to consider other people or yeah, even the small things like you said, where I leave stuff, how I leave stuff um yeah uh, uh, and that was one question that i wanted to ask you because where i was there was no children um or parents um and i can imagine that is particularly difficult when you are raising a child around people that maybe think that the way you are raising your child is quote unquote incorrect or but but then i was thinking 
uh, on the basis, I guess it depends on the um, on the rules or regulations that help create this community in the first place. Meaning, if they had agreed on certain values, then I could see how certain difficulties with uh, raising children could be um, how, how could be eased or could be helped. Um, that 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 is one thing I wanted to ask you as well. Was there was there a general trend as to how these communities were created in the first place? Mm. Yeah. So I'm trying to think. Yes, I think there was. Uh, I think usually what you tend to find is that there will be kind of a core group, a small core group of people who probably know each other from the outset. They might be old friends um, who decide, yes, this is what we want to do. Um, and then they they develop a set of values, um, like you're talking about kind of core values, uh, which might translate into kind of a loose set of values or maybe a more defined set of rules um, and then they kind of bring in more people um, and form a community together um, of course like it can happen in quite a few different ways um, so so one of the communities I worked with the the way they started um, I thought was brilliant actually so this was one of the co-living communities uh, the flat share of six people uh, so they um, the guy who kind of uh, was the originator of the idea. He said, let's treat getting together as a community almost a little bit like dating. So okay. first we're gonna we're just gonna go for dinner together and see how we get along. Uh, and then maybe, you know, maybe one or two more dinners, maybe we'll go, I don't know, go to the park, have a picnic, go to the pub together, and then we'll kind of work our way up and then we'll go for a weekend away together. Um, and so they did this. They went for their weekend away and during this weekend they thrashed out what they wanted their house agreement to be and what they thought their values were going to be. And they put it in a document. Um, and he's said to me before, he thinks that rules are freeing because having, mm. having a solid set of expectations in place means that you can kind of, I guess like, you know, you know where you are, you know what's expected of you, but you can hold each other to account without it feeling personal. Mm. Um, which I, I think in a community is quite a helpful thing. Um, so, so yeah, I think the way they did it is a really good way of doing it. Um, and another community that I worked with, one of the co-housing communities, they were quite an old community. They'd formed back in the 70s. Um, so they've been going quite a long time. And actually, as, as far as I could understand, they kind of, their so their community glue was the fact that they ran a farm together and they all very much cared about growing their own food they cared about taking very good care of the animals there um but other than that they didn't necessarily share values and this actually this caused some quite big conflicts um so for example they wanted to buy a new environmentally friendly boiler and this actually caused quite a big schism in the community for a while um and after this conflict had died down, they actually brought in an external mediator and sat down and tried to define what their values were so that they wouldn't come up with this issue again. Um, so so communities, they, they don't always go through this process of sitting down at the beginning and defining rules. But from, and you know, and it can, you can work without doing that, especially if you're, 
you're very, very aligned in the first place in how you want to live. So, for example, I went and met with a Buddhist community and to them, like there was no need to sit down and define rules together because they were already living to the same, mm. the same set of values. They already had a mm. set of rules beyond just their community that, that they agreed to. Um, but in essence, from what I can understand, it does seem like a good idea to to be aligned on at least the values in, um, by which you want to live. Thanks for that, Penny. Yeah, um, I guess I could definitely say that I've experienced almost all the like the benefits and the uh, challenges that you've that you've listed. But and then on the one side, it feels crazy not to delve further as it's like a freedom or level of connectedness that i hadn't felt before but then on the other side there's uh, somebody saying to me hey when are you going to do what real adults do <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you you mentioned that you plan on living in an intentional community i think in the future i wanted to ask has your research helped you rationalize what is widely considered as like a wild concept <laughs> oh that's a great question um yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, um, as you say, there are just so many benefits. Uh, and many of those are very practical benefits. So things like having neighbours who you trust who, you know, you can watch their kids for half an hour and they can watch your kids for half an hour. Um, mm. Buying bulk food together. Um, sharing the cooking rotor so you cook less. So you spend... You spend less time on chores. Uh, life is cheaper and more convenient. Mm. Um, so you have more free time. And that means more time to pursue your passions. Um, uh, one thing I've really noticed in communities is that a lot of people are doing things like they're starting their own business or they're going back into education or they're using their free time to engage in political activism. So it's just, it's very clear that I think in a community that works, your overall quality of life is just generally better um, because you know uh, you you're you're working as a team and teams can achieve great things when they're working together. Um, and I also I what I really like is the greater autonomy that you get in a community uh, because you have this strength in numbers um, and this autonomy enables you to live out your values in a more meaningful way. So, so for example, uh, one of the communities I no two of the communities I worked with, um, they bought solar panels, and they would not have been able to afford this um, without being able to buy them together. Um, so, yeah, in a very practical sense, as well as in this more this still extremely important but probably perceived as more fluffy well-being sense, communities come with enormous benefits. Um, and you know, and I just have to mention the the social support that you get with a community. You know, being surrounded by people who care about you and on some level are like minded is an enormously powerful thing. Um, and then the the kind of reflective um, uh, skills of of learning about yourself, learning how to listen, um, learning that there's more than one way of doing things. Um, so so absolutely, um, I think I wasn't. I don't think I initially went into this research thinking I would definitely like to live there. I was kind of, I was intrigued, um, but I didn't know it. But now, absolutely. I think it just makes complete sense as far as I'm concerned. 
Wow. <laughs> it's a big statement. I'm happy to hear. Um, <laughs> well, can I can I just ask, like, so you yeah. you spent six months living in this community. I mean, mm. how do you feel about it as a long term thing? It it definitely generated uh, a a wanting to try different ways of living. Um, so yeah, it was it was very uplifting and inspiring for me to be in a place that I'd never been before and see how people live and it's and it you know quote unquote works and people seem like you said to have a lot more free time they seem a lot more generous there seems to be like what we would call like active listening you know where for instance when people ask you how you're doing they really want to know how you're doing and they're, they're ready to sit down and you know let, interrogate that rather than it's just often in big cities when you come home you don't have it's not even that these people don't care it's just they just don't have the time to mm. uh, really get the answers for the questions that they're apparently asking and um, that was one thing that i've really noticed and then i thought geez i need to i need to like you said because having that support is uh is very reassuring and helpful particularly through difficult times it but also, like, the difficulties were tough. And then I'd be lying to you if I told you that there were some days where, like, oh, I wish I just had a one-bedroom place and I didn't have to deal with all these people, you know. <laughs> um, but then I but then I know that, oh, well, I believe anyway that these are just, <clears throat> this is just a part of me clinging on to, you know, maybe what's easier and maybe not, what, not what, what's best for me to develop and grow further. And particularly, like you said, even with the su- sustainable side of things, it was just nice and seeing where our compost went and seeing people were just considerate with even just small things like the the products that we use to wash our clothes and yeah just simple things it was nice and I was just learning constantly um so I'm in a place now where I'm very interested in trying another uh another community but I think it would have to it, it it would have to, you know, kind of feel right. You know, I don't want to, uh, because th- th- as you said, a lot of communities end up failing. And I do think that's because maybe they didn't do what one of the communities you mentioned where they kind of went on it. They took it as like, they were dating somebody. Oh yeah. I like this. Maybe I spend a bit more time. Oh yeah. I see that we, we view the, we view the world similarly. So this won't be an issue in five or 10 years. And mm. that that's my belief also that, if I were to pursue it further, it would really have to be uh, on a small gradual basis because, you know, I don't necessarily want to do it for a year or two and then things break down again um, because it wasn't uh, correctly planned out. But uh, yeah, it it really has just opened me up and I'd be lying if I told you that I hadn't yeah, felt uh, a level of freedom and uh, openness that I hadn't felt before. Um, and I would definitely, I definitely encourage anybody who's tempted to try it to try it because you'll only learn more about yourself, you know. And so it's there's, there's no losing, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I I really resonate with what you're saying about um, the kind of being being by yourself is like the easy option and it feels nice and of course like sometimes we need our own space right and that's that's absolutely fine but the the community living thing is sort of like 
it's the harder thing to do that feels better afterwards. Um, (laughs) It's just like all those dilemmas (laughs) where you get up in the morning and you're like, oh, I should go for a run or I could just not do that. I could just, you know, watch, watch a bit of Netflix. And if you go for the run, it's harder at the time, but you feel great afterwards. Like you feel kind of like nourished by it. Uh, mm-hmm. or you watch the TV and it feels kind of easy and kind of good, but then you probably like, you know, you might not feel as great about it afterwards if you've been intending to go for a run. And mm. uh, I see like community living is a bit like that. Like in some ways it is the harder option because it does take time and energy and you do have to think about other people more. Um, but ultimately it's so much more fulfilling to, mm. and you're, you're kind of like, you'll be glad you did it. It's the, re- it's the jog of social interactions. <laughs> <laughs> well, put. Uh, as I was born and raised in Dublin, I need to ask you just, uh, you mentioned before as we were talking that co-living has been a pretty controversial subject in Dublin with a lot of skepticism mm. about how good co-living is for the residents and how if it's done badly, it's just a way to squeeze a greater number of people into a smaller space for, for big rent. Um, I was wondering, have you thought about any ways in which, I mean, I'm sure your work at Conscious Co-Living definitely uh, contributes to this, but or maybe this is a nice bridge into your work at Conscious Co-Living, how to, <laughs> how to help uh, balance these two, like not because there will be people who think it's a good idea to try this co-living, but then will end up being shafted by people who just want to make a lot of money from a lot of people with a small space. And h- how do you... How do you think that can be uh, balanced? Yeah, how do you think it, we can mm. walk that line? Yeah, that that is a really great question. It's it's a very very uh, pertinent topic at this point because, um, mm. as you say, I, I totally agree. So, professionalized co living is on the rise and it's going to continue to grow. Um, but you're absolutely right that there is there is a big risk, right? That this, you know, you slap the trendy name co-living on the label, uh, and then you just you're just increasing the density of your properties, as you say, squeezing more people into smaller spaces. And mm. in with co-living spaces that are not as well run, what you tend to find is like they do have beautiful communal areas, uh, but there's there's no one really in them and I, I i won't i won't name names but um recently i took a tour of a co-living space and um went up and had a chat with someone using like this lovely communal area and they said yeah it's great there's no one ever really in here i have the place to myself and <laughs> <laughs> i kind of you know it was a palm to face moment in terms of yeah. the, the success of of the sense of community in that in the co-living <laughs> space um so yeah i think that certainly that's part of what we see our role as 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 conscious co-living um so we're a, a spatial and experience um design consultancy who aims to help co-living communities embed the sense of well-being, the sense of authentic community and environmental sustainability into their co-living spaces. Um, and yeah, also, we've also seen that it is a danger that these kinds of things get lost. So, you you know, it could be that you get property developers coming in who they've seen that co-living is trendy and they see a good business opportunity. Um, You could get property developers coming in who really genuinely love the idea of forming a community, but they don't 
necessarily have the background or the knowledge. Um, mm. So I think where where we see ourselves as a consultancy in part is to kind of take these developers by the hand. And um, in, I mean, certainly part of my role is that I've been and I've visited and stayed with various intentional communities. And I'm thinking, how can we take the great practices, the knowledge and the wisdom from these communities and make sure that these are being communicated to property developers who might not know about it? Um, and then also, you know, for those who perhaps are are not kind of community converts, how do we sell them the benefits and say, you know, your residents being happier, surprise, surprise, will end up being better business for you because, you know, because they stay longer, um, yeah, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So I think, yeah, making sure that we sell the benefits and communicate how to to bring this sense of authentic community into these spaces is going is really essential because really you know the co-living sector is um it's starting to mature it's taking shape and so it's quite a pivotal moment to try and make sure that it it is a positive innovation to to housing and mm. not not a negative one do you guys have like a, a quasi means test for seeing if developers are very authentic with their wish to develop a you know a fruitful <laughs> community? Can, like, can you see it? Can you see it after a meeting or two that they want to you know sell it as a community, but they, it's really not their their true intention? Okay. Or is it... <laughs> well, I think you know what. Uh, to be fair, everyone we work with so far, I feel like they their heart is in the right place with it and that they are they're involved in co-living um because they do love this idea of community so that does make me that makes me optimistic i hope i'm not too naive in saying that but i i am optimistic it's, that these business people do care it's probably just because i'm from ireland that i have a very bad idea of property developers so i don't want to i'm sure there are very lovely property developers out there aren't I'm sorry. Yeah, um, it's okay. I've I've been seeing some of the newspaper headlines. <laughs> yes, yes, you understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, just to just to close, I'd love to know how you see personally living arrangements develop or evolve over the next decade or two. Do you really see this as a a true viable alternative for the problem with the expanding cities and high rise apartments, uh, etc.? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, super interesting question. Um, so, as a as someone who is not not entirely unbiased, um, I have to admit, uh, yes, I I do see this as a great alternative. Um, I can see the professional co living uh, will certainly continue to grow. Um, at the moment, it's it's mostly aimed at urban millennials. Um, I think it's it's going to diversify towards families and older people um, it already has started to do that but I, th- I think and I hope it will continue to do that um, I also think that the typographies of professional co-living will diversify a bit more so at the moment um, I think they're trending towards this more kind of hospitality sector and quite large large monolithic spaces um, mm. but perhaps we'll see more kind of networks of houses rather than just like one big building. Um, I think also 
um, infrastructure, like legal infrastructure, will become more enabling. Like we're already seeing that happening. Um, the new London plan has an asset class, which is uh, large scale purpose built shared living, H18. Um, so, and I think that there's also um, some funding has been made available over the past few years for for um, community-led housing projects too. So I think there's an increasing recognition um, in the UK from the government um, that this is something that people are wanting. Um, mm. and, uh, and as I mentioned before, like while there's always going to be these grassroots communities happening, um, I don't think that's ever going to be a mainstream thing. I think the, the grassroots communities will always be, it'll always be quite niche, which is okay. Mm. Um, I think if this becomes mainstream, it's because businesses are going to make this happen. Um, mm. So, so what is really important is is helping or is ensuring that businesses make this happen in a way that's really beneficial to people. Mm. Um, and also, I mean, I think a large part of this becoming a mainstream option is is a culture shift as well. So still predominantly we're a culture who values uh privacy and ownership you know we have this kind of fantasy of when i make it i'm going to buy my own big house and so mm. co-housing and co-living flip this on its head really um big time. and i think that as we're seeing as as these problems of loneliness and isolation of the of the climate crisis and also the housing crisis have, be, have become more and more visible um i think that types of community living um are very timely in becoming great answers to this issue um so i hope that um you know that this kind of this kind of shared living can spark some imagination in people um considering the challenges that we face because uh, I think they do, they do offer real and viable uh, potential solutions to these challenges. Thanks for that, Penny. Uh, um, I hope so. <laughs> we'll see. Only yeah. time will tell. Um, <laughs> just, just before we finish, I'd like to ask: How do you keep on top of your mental health? Uh, do you have any secret tips? <laughs> oh that's that's a really nice question um i can't so i honestly i can't pretend to be a uh a, a well-being mental health um expert at all but i i can tell you what i do um beautiful so <laughs> so i think uh it's been something i thought about more i i guess we've all thought about it a bit more with coronavirus going on and you know working from home and this kind of thing it's uh yeah kind of looking after your mental health has sort of become more at the forefront of of our of our daily lives and one thing I've realized is that um I really love being in green space um like a lot of people so I, I realize I kind of have a green space quota so if I go a few days without you know going for a nice walk in the woods I don't feel as good and then if I go and take a walk there I just like I just feel better I feel relaxed yeah. I feel calm um so so I kind of now very purposefully take the time. So I used to just go for a jog and come back. Now I go for a jog to a wood. I'd spend 15 minutes just walking around the wood and then I jog back. So I kind of nice. combined my exercise with a kind of well-being routine as well, um, which yeah. until recently, that's just something I hadn't done before. Um, 
And then the the one other thing I wanted to mention was that with my colleagues at Conscious Co Living, um, so as is as is standard well being practice amongst our sort, um, <laughs> we we start the meeting with a check in. Um, um, and I'm sure, like you're, you're very familiar with check-ins. Um, but yes, but could just, you explain it for the listeners? Yeah, sure. So essentially, a uh, check-in is like um, it's taking taking the time, however long that might be, a minute or five minutes, to just say how you are and um, and to share that with other people, and for those other people to just listen to you um, without necessarily responding at all. Um, so, you know, particularly in British culture, it's a standard thing to say, how are you? And then you say, I'm fine or I'm okay, but you're not really expected to give a real full answer, right? Um, whereas with a check-in, you're meant to give a genuine answer. Um, and I found this to be a very rewarding practice um, and quite important to me, actually. So in our weekly meetings, you know, I get to check in once a week with with people who I, I feel care about me a lot and who I care about a lot. Um, but the the interesting thing I realized the other day was that now um, in my head, if I, you know, if I'm having a day where work is long, things are hard, um, I actually kind of am starting to conduct an internal check in. And so we oh. so to give you this context, we we have a remote meeting every week. So I see them on my Zoom conference screen. And in my head, when I give this internal check in, they're there in my head on the Zoom screen they're they're listening to me and they're being you know they're giving me a pat on the back and being like don't worry you're gonna do fine so um the the check-in has become important enough to me that I've now internalized it (laughs) it's in my head and and so yeah like um it's been a very good practice to me and this the support I feel has sort of extended beyond that check-in um so so yeah that's that's a couple of ways in which I think um I maintain a sense of well-being well, it's definitely an earthly delight first. So thanks for sharing that. Um, and Penny, yeah, thanks for a million for giving us your time. I really appreciate it. Um, and if anybody had thought, uh, had enjoyed this and would like to share it with their friends, family, coworkers, please share. Um, all the best, Penny. Thanks a million. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 